Connected by purpose, driven by passion. This is Children's Healthcare Canada's Spark Conversations podcast series. Welcome to Spark Conversations, Children's Healthcare Canada's monthly podcast series. At the crossroads of children's healthcare system improvement and leadership, Spark Conversations is a new solution-focused podcast that connects the child health community with system leaders who tackle wicked problems and discuss ideas to inform the development of innovative and integrated systems serving children and youth. I'm Paula Robeson, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Ronald Cohen, President and CEO of the Hospital for Sick Children, or as we fondly refer to it, Sick Kids, about children's hospitals of the future, creating conditions for healthy kids. Hello, Ronnie, and welcome to Spark Conversations. Hello, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being with us today, albeit virtually, and thanks for responding to the three teaser questions we've posted on our blog, Spark Ideas. For our audience, if you haven't already done so, you may wish to pause this episode and check out these written responses on the Spark Ideas page at childrenshealthcarecanada.ca. Then come back and join us. In those responses, Dr. Cohen describes his vision for the new Sick Kids, which is currently undergoing significant capital renewal, maintaining agility and flexibility when planning well into the future, and lessons learned from other international jurisdictions. So, Dr. Cohen, let's get started. Jack Kitts, the former CEO of the Ottawa Hospital, often spoke of the role that hospitals play as community hubs or centers of the community, dedicated to health promotion and wellness, but also where cutting-edge science and research drives learning and discovery. How does that perspective of hospitals resonate with you? I think Jack hit the nail on the head with his uh, summary of what the role of hospitals really are, particularly tertiary or quaternary care hospitals. Because I think if you look at hospitals, something that I think hospitals do in part, but probably need to do even more, is to be like an integrated part of the entire continuum of care. There are certain things that, of course, have to happen in a hospital, uh, whether it's a community hospital or a tertiary care hospital. But I think hospitals should not be disconnected from the community as it relates to health promotion or wellness, but also as it relates to the multiple levels of care that our patients receive in the community, in schools, and I think establishing a strong connection there, even stronger than we have today, is probably how I would foresee the future even develop further. Because really what the goal in my mind should be for hospitals is to think about how we can provide care at any time and anywhere. Now, part of that is going to depend on some of the research that happens in these academic hospitals as it relates to technology development and so on, that may have to be developed in a research hospital, but then has to be translated into the community. Of course, if we are thinking really about the cutting-edge science and the basic discovery that drives some of these learnings and some of these applications, they need to happen in a hospital because this is where you have the connection to the patients that help either provide you a certain question 
that the basic science is going to answer, or alternatively, where you have a basic science discovery that can be directly brought to the bedside in terms of testing a new diagnostic methodology or even trying to test new treatments. So I think Jack was spot on with his uh, description that the hospital per se plays a really, really big role within the scientific as well as the community. In preparation for this conversation, I read some literature related to smart hospitals. Healthcare organizations have integrated state-of-the-art technology to connect patients and providers and maximize just-in-time information exchange. What does a smart hospital look like to you? Before I go deeper into answering the question, we need to begin at the concept of a journey that many of the hospitals have started within the last five to ten years around truly family-centered care. It is already part of what we all do, but I think it's now the time to actually take the next step. Because if we think about how do we want to improve the care within the hospital, how do we want to leverage technology in order to improve the care and workflow models like you have have talked about, improve the safety and the spaces that we are operating in, it is kind of now an absolutely necessity to involve parents into our thinking and in part into the design of the technology so we are actually improving things for our patients and their families and not just what we think uh, would look like as an improvement. So if you think about the smart hospital of the future, there are really three issues that, that we have to think about. One is really how can we improve the current experience for our children and their families as we introduce technology more and more, particularly in the context of what I said earlier, if you think about um, hospital care at any time, anywhere, that will be heavily technology dependent. And I think uh, we need to uh, get our parents right away into the discussion from the very beginning in how that's going to look like. Because then we can leverage this technology to minimize the hospital stay as much as possible. In my mind, designing uh, the smart hospital is not just only about improving workflow and safety, but also needs to really focus on can we reduce the time for children to be at a hospital as much as possible? And then how can we look into introducing technologies in a way that takes really into account the existing inequities within our healthcare system and really society at large? And if, if COVID has shown us many things uh, during the pandemic, we have for sure um, seen what we have known for a long time, but we have health inequities existing in the Canadian healthcare system as much as anywhere else in the world. And I want to give you an example of what I mean by that. Our um, emergency room, uh, led by Dr. Devin Singh, has developed or is developing currently uh, an artificial intelligence platform called Hero AI for our emergency room that uh, is looking at algorithms that are aiming to reduce the wait times in the emergency room. 
And it does this by anticipating surgeries, predicting the tests the patient may need while they are waiting, organizing staff and other resources. And that's kind of the general idea of what this uh, technology is supposed to do. Now, from the very get-go, we are looking to make sure that we have a truly equitable access uh, for a hospital, particularly based on the diverse patient population that we have here in Toronto and the GTA. So the designing of the app is really looking at how can we detect and counteract systemic barriers to emergency care, which includes things like language, race, ethnicity, gender, age, and other socioeconomic factors, so that we don't have a bias assessment and that the inequities that are existing can directly be incorporated how we are collecting our data, how we then develop certain artificial intelligence supported models in order to propagate bias as algorithms to train our machines in order to eliminate those from the get-go. And I think this is just one of many examples of how we have to make sure that if we are going to, and we will be everywhere in the healthcare system, introducing more and more technology, we have to think about the inequities that are existing right at the first time of developing these algorithms before it's too late and we have to play catch-up. COVID certainly did shine a light on the inequities that exist within our system. So I think the idea of using AI to truly reduce these inequities in access is a fabulous idea. I think it has now come to the forefront in a fairly almost dramatic manner. And I would argue that we as a healthcare system have a once in a lifetime opportunity to now find solutions to conquer this. I mean, if we don't do it now, then I don't know when we will ever do it. Yeah, we do certainly have a window of opportunity. You mentioned the role of families and the family-centered care journey. What role have or will family partners have in the redesign of SickKids? So we have... uh, an incredible group of volunteers who are part of our family advisory network, but we also have a terrific group of children who are either patients at SickKids or who are siblings of patients at SickKids who form the Children's Council. And members of both groups are actively involved in uh, all of the discussions and in fact are part of our steering committee for our Project Horizon construction of the new hospital. And I think it speaks to what I mentioned earlier. We need to get the input from our families at the very beginning. We can't come up with uh, um, fully baked plans of how we think the hospital should look like and then present it to the families and children and ask for their advice. But there's one other aspect I want to talk about how we are now trying to involve uh, parents more, and that's on the research side. I think we as scientists, whether we are doing clinical science or or basic discovery research, we are often thinking about what are important problems to tackle and how should we tackle them, and then try to design certain research projects around this. I can tell you out of my own experience, 
particularly as it relates to clinical research, sometimes the, sometimes the questions we think are important to design research around turn out to be maybe not quite as meaningful or important to families or children. So we are now um, trying to uh, design systems where we can involve our families, mostly the parents, but in some cases uh, also our children, into the design of search certain either research questions, and if not the question, but then at least into the design of how a certain research project should be structured in terms of the methodology and so on. And I think that's going to be really critical for, to be honest, not just children's hospitals, for every hospital that conducts research to more and more involve the patient and or the families in order to ensure that what we are asking are actually questions that uh, are appreciated by the community and will be helpful. Yeah, it's about asking relevant questions that people want current and meaningful answers to, and then helping them interpret the findings of that research in light of their questions and desires for information. Yeah, because I think we often make certain assumptions on what we think might be beneficial to patients or families that may turn out to be not entirely on target. I'll give you one example. I remember several years ago, I had dinner with 12 young men with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a progressive muscle disorder that over time replaces healthy muscle tissue with fat and scar tissue. And, And the older you become, the weaker you become because <clears throat> your muscles um, are being replaced by the scar and fat tissue. And I remember having a discussion with these young gentlemen around the future of gene therapy or even genome editing therapy. And I remember one of uh, the young men telling me, you know, Ronnie, if you could just identify a therapy that, that could help my hand muscles to still function so I can use them at a computer or for small tasks, you would change my life. And I have to admit to you, it was almost a eureka moment for me to realize that at each stage of a certain disease, potential beneficial impact might be perceived and recognized by patients in a completely different way. And I should never make any kind of assumptions about what I think might be beneficial without actually asking the patients who may receive this treatment to ask them what is beneficial. There are more rarer diseases in Canada, and we just celebrated Rare Disease Day on February 28th. What does the future look like for people with uh, rare diseases moving forward, in particular children, and the role of children's hospitals in shaping that future? So I would argue that the future for patients with rare diseases is probably looking brighter every year, mainly because of two reasons. There's a diagnostic aspect to rare diseases where many families and patients have been looking for answers for medical problems that were known to be genetic in in origin, but we couldn't really make a diagnosis. Now, having the opportunity uh, of genome sequencing as a clinical test being available, we are now all of a sudden being able to make more and more diagnoses in patients. And that is really a development that has 
uh, occurred over the last eight, nine years already and will co just continue to increase. And I will tell you, uh, it has been really a very humbling experience for me professionally to realize how much it means for many, if not most, of my patients and their families to receive an answer uh, for a question they've been asking themselves for years, even if there is no real treatment available. But I do think it's critical for academic hospitals to play a major role in some of these diagnostic uh, technologies that will, of course, go beyond genome sequencing as we look uh, into the years ahead. But then there's obviously the treatment uh, aspect to the rare disease uh, population. And, and really, over the last few years, we have seen some remarkable treatments coming forward to the fore coming to the forefront for diseases that really had a terrible prognosis. And there are probably too many to name right now, but let me maybe talk about spinal muscular atrophy as an example. It's a, it's a neuromuscular disorder that comes uh, that occurs in three different forms: either the very severe form in children and in infants, or uh, the mild, milder form uh, as type two in, in young children, um, and then there's a fairly mild form of type three. But if you take the very severe form, these were children who often either didn't survive or if they survived, very little capability of moving any of the extremities. And we now have two, not just one, two and soon even three therapies available that if given and treated very early on in life, may have a remarkable impact on children. I mean, we are now seeing type one SMA children who are being treated very early on with one of these treatments sitting and sometimes even walking. That was just unthinkable many years ago, and for sure unthinkable by the time uh, I started uh, seeing these patients as a young physician. But So I think with these conventional gene therapy or gene therapy-like treatments, we will see many, many more coming along. And then we have obviously the genome editing technology around CRISPR that has now the ability to actually fix genetic mutations, a concept that was entirely impossible to even think about 10 years ago. And we are now in a position to begin to think about how we can fix genetic mutations. And I would predict that within the next 10 to 20 years, we will revolutionize the way how we practice medicine by trying to implement these technology into our treatment efforts. and. I think and hope I will still be around before I retire uh, as we get ready to administer some of these treatments to the rare disease population. It must be very exciting to watch the changes over the course of your career and to a point where what was impossible 10 years ago is, is a reality to families today. It's probably one of the reasons why I love, love it so much to be in a position to be a physician and a scientist and, and taking advantages of the developments and trying to find ways how we can actually move them into a beneficial improvement of the care for our patient. I have to say your love and passion for your work certainly comes through in speaking with you. 
not just in this conversation, but other, say, podcasts I've heard you do and other times I've heard you speak, it, it definitely comes, uh, absolutely comes through. How has COVID changed how you and leaders like you imagine the future role of children's health care? I, I think I spoke to some of the aspects earlier as it relates to health inequities and uh, I think it's a responsibility of the healthcare system, but it's also a responsibility of the leaders within the healthcare system to maybe just now talk about it, but but really move quickly from talking to action. And I think if you look at the pandemic uh, situation, particularly in Canada, what has become very clear is that hospitals have been the anchor of the pandemic response, really at so many levels. If you look at uh, support for long-term care facilities, uh, up to initially helping to organize some of the logistics around vaccination, testing, and so on. So I think we need to leverage this experience from the pandemic and really think about how hospitals can play the role within the healthcare system that we discussed earlier during our conversation as assistance leader on one hand, but also as a system supporter on the other hand. And that is true for Children's Hospital as much of any uh, as much as any of the other adult hospitals. I mean, I will say one of the very few silver linings clearly has been that children, at least until today, uh, have not been severely affected or nearly as severely affected from uh, COVID like many of the adults. At the same time, Children's hospitals did play an active role in the pandemic response as it related to issues around schools, around testing, supporting congregate uh, communities with testing, and also playing a role within the adult care system to help establish or create capacity. And I think all of this has shown how we can, as a healthcare system among hospitals, work together like many of us maybe thought we could never do it like this. And and so this is a golden opportunity to learn from all the wonderful things that actually have really worked well and leverage them into the post-COVID times so that we don't lose any of the positive learnings. There have been negative learnings too. That we're going to leverage, of course, as well. But I think, by and large, I would argue we have worked so well together within the healthcare system that we should try our very best to never lose again. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of effort has, has been made to capture a lot of these lessons learned and share them. Uh, the collaboration we've seen across academic centers or even research teams has been phenomenal. In a previous role, you were chair of the Department of Pediatrics at U of T. So in light of uh, the vision that you have for hospitals in the future, where, where do you see it impacting how we train and prepare healthcare leaders, be they physicians or other clinicians, for the future of children's healthcare? Yeah, so I guess I would like to start with the vision that I have laid out for sick kids around precision child health. And Really, in a nutshell, what it comes down to is to think about how we can truly provide individualized care to the patient and the families we take care of. I think too often we found ourselves caught up in trying to make our patients fit into what we call the, quote, norm, 
not recognizing that most of the patients don't read textbooks. They don't follow into the norm. So I think if we think about the training of the next generation of physicians, it needs to start by us educating these young medical students by not getting nervous anymore if somebody doesn't follow the textbook that they obviously have to read, but trying to make them understand and allow them to feel comfortable asking the question, why is this particular patient now not following the textbook? I think that's the very first idea of this concept. And then obviously you build on this by integrating lots of technologies where we are trying to leverage all sorts of data that we collect on our, our patients all, all along from the genetic code to the postal code. And that will require uh, training not just conceptually slightly different medical students, but also allowing medical students and young physicians to get training in data systems, data management, machine learning, artificial intelligence, intelligence, and then also trying to train the next generation of physicians a little bit as system thinkers. You know, we talk quite a bit about the role of hospitals within the healthcare system. And that's something you don't really learn in medical school uh, or you don't really learn in residency. And I think trying to think about how we can teach certain concepts to our residents in a way that they, then can, that they then can take this into either the community or the hospital they will be working is critical. But I do think, passionate as I am about precision child health, I think it first starts by changing the conceptual thinking we have around the patients and the families we take care of. On that note and that fascinating concept, I would like to thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Cohen, and I wish you well. And I wish Sick Kids well in its new um, uh, endeavors to restructure. Thank you very much for having me and for all these fascinating questions. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. You too. Stay up to date on all our Spark offerings, including upcoming podcast episodes and related teaser questions and answers. Visit our website at childrenshealthcarecanada.ca and subscribe to our Spark weekly newsletter if you haven't already. Thanks for listening to Spark Conversations. And before we go, show some love for your new podcast series by leaving us a review and then join us again next month. Thank you. Thank you.